welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. The December issue of Harper's Magazine features Kate DiCamillo's first published story for adults. If you're listening to this episode because you're familiar with her name, you already know why this is a milestone. She's a two-time Newbery Medal-winning author of children's literature. Editor Chris Beha speaks with Dee Camillo about the evolution of her career and the art of writing fiction for young readers that doesn't pander to older ones. I'm thrilled to be here talking with Kate Dee Camillo, whose wonderful story on a winter's night is in the December issue. Kate is, among other things, a very, very beloved author for younger readers. I have quite young readers in my family, and um, we are obsessed with the Mercy Watson and Dekawu Drive books, and are particular fans of the Lincoln Sisters, as I think <laughs> people who are in that world are. Um, and then we had some other people here who have somewhat older young readers in their lives who who were very excited that we were publishing you because of their experience with uh, Despero and some of your other books. Um, but I'm not sure, you, uh, you can tell me, um, how much fiction you have written that is specifically for adults before this story. Not much, although it is where I, I started writing. So I, uh, when I uh, finally sat down and uh, tried to answer for myself. Um, I, I began by writing uh, short stories and, and sending them out to literary magazines. And so that was where I got published in the beginning. And then through what a friend of mine called Serendipity Duda, I ended up um, as a book picker uh, in a book warehouse on the third floor, which was all children's books. And that kind of like changed the course of my life and, and my writing life, all of them, all at once. And I, I started to write for, for children. But I, I started out by writing short stories for adults. So I want to I, I, I want to say first that I was not having read a lot of your um, your work for 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 kids. I was not at all surprised that I wound up loving this story because um they're they're just wonderful books and they're wonderful books for adults to read um and there's there's a way sometimes that i think um children's book authors make their work kind of palatable for the parents that are often reading it and that's yeah. by um having kind of like like inside jokes that only the adults get and and sort of winking in that way um which often sort of irritates me um and you don't do that at all you know it's it's um the things that make them so wonderful for adults to read are the same things that make them wonderful for the children to read which is just the world you're building the way you use language the characterization uh, all of the things that make uh fiction for adults wonderful to read as well um and i wonder how what what if any is was is the change in mindset for you as you sit down to write a story and you're thinking this is primarily for um, an audience of six to ten year olds versus this is an audience of ten to sixteen year olds versus this is an adult audience. Yeah, I I don't think about audience. Um, I, I I think about uh, the the story 
and trying to um, answer for the story. And then at some point, once I feel like I've got the voice of a thing right, and I'm further along in the drafts, then I might start to ask the question of who it's for. But, you know, what I found when I first started trying to do this, when I sat down and, and wrote the first um, book uh, for children, was that uh, without knowing it, um, I felt this kind of, uh, like, duty-bound um, to to end with hope um, in, a, in a way that I don't feel when I'm writing for adults. And that kind of unspoken um, demand changed the kind of story that I wrote and it changed me as a writer and I liked what, how it changed me as a writer. So that's the only thing. Does that make sense? That, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I remember thinking, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where I'm supposed to be is, is, and it just, it, it really, um, it changed me profoundly to write for this age group without even, thinking, what do I need to do, but rather feeling what I needed to do, which is to give that eight-year-old that I was, um, who couldn't stand to be condescended to, um, and but who needed something to hold on to and hope for that was realistic. That's what, that's, you know, I'm kind of like answering to that kid this way. And do you feel a little a little nervous or uh, bringing that mindset into adult fiction? It, it It's, it's, well, can we get into how this ended up in your hands? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I, the long answer is, uh, well, the short answer is I never know what I'm doing. And the long answer is um, I'm uh, good friends with Ann Patchett who um, is one of my first readers. And when I wrote this story that y'all published, um, she said that, oh, we can, you know, this can get published in, in, a, in a magazine for adults. And um, I, I don't know, Chris, I don't know what the difference is, except that the hope is here, right? And yeah. so it's just like, so if I let myself think about it intellectually, because I'm always proceeding by instinct, if I let myself think about it intellectually, I think, okay, then that's what I need to do to be able to, to write for um, a, a story that really matters for adults, too, is that same thing that I bring to kids is, is the hope. But also, um, the, you know, the, I always keep E.B. White in mind, you know, it's just like, that, that thing about telling you the truth. I feel like that is so much my responsibility is to tell the truth and to make the truth bearable. Um, yeah. and, but that's gotta happen for adults too, right? We need the truth. We, we need the truth um, made bearable even more sometimes than kids do, I think. For sure. And I think there's a question of um, some people think that, that by, you know, there's a there's a strain in contemporary fiction that has gone, you know, been been the case for for a long time. But that 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 um, if you're telling the most cynical version or the darkest version, um, that that you are telling the truth. 
right. and that sometimes we get blinded to the fact that all of this other stuff um, is is part of reality. You know, the hopeful stuff is in fact is in fact there. You know, I I, I wasn't sure we were going to talk about Anne, but since you bring it up, you know, so she sent me the story, and my my and and um, Anne obviously has a has a wonderful talent in her own fiction for you know she writes realist fiction but at the same time um she's just she's 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 alive to certain patterns in the world um uh that i think a lot of people do try and close themselves off from um yeah and my own experience with Anne, we published this wonderful essay of hers about her experience with this artist, Suki Raphael. And um, it has in it so many sort of like odd pieces of synchronicity and connection. And the way that story came to me was itself like we wound up having these very odd connections that felt like part of the story. And then when she sent your story to me, I felt like, again, like, and I already had this connection to your work and then reading the story that is so alive to these sort of magical connections, there was something actually, you know, quite profound about it to me. Yeah. What a wonderful, wonderful. I'm like, I'm listening to you uh, with my mouth hanging open, kind of like, cause you just connected even more dots for me, you know, and, and I'm thinking about Anne's work and what, you know, as when I read Anne, because I got to read that essay before it, you know, like when she was working on it, it always amazes me um, that her language is so straightforward um, and, uh, and almost no nonsense. But yet it's exactly like you said, she plugs into there. She has a belief in goodness that um, is behind that unadorned language. And in it kind of like it, it, it reaches out and makes those connections. Does, am, am I articulating? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. A lot of sense to me. And so I just to, you know, um, with fiction, you don't necessarily want to just like tell the whole story to people in the way that if we were discussing a reported piece, we might get into the substance. But this story on a winter's night is, um, is set on Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, it is a, it, the first line is my father told me this story and it is, you know, a story that is being, you know, reported through this in this kind of secondary way with um, an intermediate narrator. Um, and, you know, so it is, it's something that, that, that kind of fits into a, a genre, if you will, which is the kind of the Christmas tale, you know? Um, and what we've been talking about, I think fits into this because um, there are, uh, there are certain ways that we allow like the holiday season or things like that to have this charge to it that in the, the rest of our day-to-day lives, we, 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 we sort of won't accept or find kind of sentimental or something like that. Um, and I wonder if you were, you were conscious of, I guess you said you weren't thinking of this as particularly a, a story for adults, but um if you were if you were conscious that setting it in this 
and this time allowed you a little more room uh, to to in the world of you know quote unquote serious adult fiction to still have this um, this mindset that informs so much of your other writing. It, it's it, it's a lovely question because um, that you're right. We were more willing to uh, let that potential as adults for magic in at this time of year without feeling apologetic about it. Um, but uh, it goes to the mindset, or at least I was going to say of children, I was going to say, or at least of the kid that I was, where um, that's the way the world feels all the time. I, I think of it as um, peripheral magic. And it's one of the reasons that I um, love writing for kids so much because I don't know if you know uh, British books by Mary Norton, uh, The Borrowers. Oh, um, yeah. I love those books. I loved them as a kid. It's little people who live in the floorboards of your house. And so there's always this feeling when you're a kid um, that if you turn around slowly enough, you're going to be able to see um, that that magic um, that's right there in, in the house with you. And, 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 and writing for kids lets me tap into that feeling all the time, that, that, that sense that everything is poised and waiting and if if you're just careful enough and quiet enough you can you can see it you can see the miracle you can see the beauty you can see the wonder and um so i didn't think of christmas as a way in particular to tap into that but it's that that opening line um my father told me the story i'd had this image and this doesn't give away too much uh, of it gives away some of it, I guess, of of an A and P and a and a deer showing up in the parking lot of the A and P. I'd had that for years and years and years, and I could never quite make it work. And that one line, my father told me the story, unlocked everything. Um, and so for me, that was that was the way in um, was that line, and and I don't know why. Um, but that's where the match, that was the key that opened the door to all the magic. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful opening. Um, uh, you spoke about the borrowers. I wonder if you could just talk about some of your other, uh, influences as a writer. Uh, well, you know, as a kid, um, if it was a book, I loved it. Um, and it was just, that's, uh, and, I just loved to read everything, and I was very fortunate that I had a mother who read to me and took me to the library and bought me books. Um, as an adult, uh, I, um, I, I'm i all over the place. I go back and forth. I toggle between rereading uh, Hans Christian Andersen and Isaac Dennison. Those are two of my um, North Stars there. And I guess that probably explains some of my writing. But I also, uh, I love uh, Alice Munro. I love, uh, I love the best American short stories when it comes out every year. What a short story can do never ceases uh, to amaze me and thrill me and inspire me. Um, and I, I just, I read everything I can get my hands on. Dennison is a, is, is a real favorite of mine, just a 
magical, magical writer. You know, she doesn't get talked about very much anymore. Yeah. And she's just central. And as is Judith Thurman's biography of her, which I return to on a yearly basis, Isaac Dennis and the Life of a Storyteller. Yeah. yeah, just, I could not live without it. Without making this about, about my own fiction, but I, I in, in my work, I'm a sort of thoroughgoing realist writer, but what I'm, what I'm always trying to do is make it have a magical feel while being thoroughly realist. I mean, I think one of the things I love about the the best realist writers, like a, a George Eliot or a Tolstoy, or is how is how charged they make the natural world seem. It's 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 a wonderful such a wonderful element of of this story. You know, there's no um there's there's no talking pigs uh, eating toast. You know, but it's, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but it's really interesting because I had just this summer, um, for the first time since college, I reread Middlemarch and I might as well be a totally different person than I was. You know, it's just like, it's like I'd never read it almost, you know, I was reading it for the A before. And I'm just thinking about what, what you said about how um, the, it, it, the more, the more closely you pay attention to the world, uh, the more realistic you are, the more, the more magic there is. Right. Um, It's just uh, to describe what you see in front of you. Um, You know, there's that great quote in middle of March about, you know, if we could hear the grass grow. Right. Um, And, but it's just so it's, it's, it's a really interesting idea that like, the more attention you pay and the more realistic, uh, you, the more you try to capture the realism of the world, the more magical it gets. I love that. There's a, I, I don't know to what extent you get engaged in this sort of stuff, but I think there's obviously in contemporary literary fiction, um, you know, uh, auto fiction is a big thing. There's a, there, there's on one side, there's, there's a strain that is, um, embraces uh fantasy in the kind of in the kind of genre sense um or playing with kind of genre tropes and then on the other side within the like quote unquote um you know realist literary world there's become something of a of a suspicion about storytelling basically um or um about trying to make a particular kind of sort of dreamlike immersive experience as though that's a um, as though it's a lie or something like that, or, or um, and uh, um, it's. I think I I I I always respond um, to to something like what you've done here, where you can actually. It's not a it's not a fantasy story in the, in the sense of any genre elements, but it is. It's it's there's something of just like really old fashioned storytelling in the best way to the story where, and um, uh, it, it, it has that sense of magic to it. Uh, it, It's a lovely compliment to say it's old fashioned storytelling. Um, And I, because I think that um, we need it so much, you know, we, we just, we, and, and this is something that I bump into a lot more in my world. Um, uh, in writing for kids, that that thing of being with somebody in a story, 
Um, and this is the beautiful thing. And I've already heard from people um, uh, about them taking this story that you published in Harper's and reading it out loud um, and to, to their kids. But, you know, it used to be when I would talk to a group of people, I would sometimes say, go home and read to your adult um, because we all desperately need that old fashioned storytelling. It's like, you can feel like a missing part of yourself or, you know, just, uh, and, and you're, I know that you are reading to Olive and Henry all the time. Yes. Um, and you can now testify to the power of being, uh, it, something miraculous happens. It's a way to connect, um, that, uh, it's, it's kind of like a subterranean connection happens when somebody reads a story to somebody else. It's just as powerful for the person who's reading the story. Yeah. That's what old fashioned storytelling is. Right. So thank, thank you for letting me, um, get to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, I can I ask without, um, getting deeply into contemporary politics and, uh, whatnot. Um, you, you know, you've been, you've been writing for a while now. A lot has happened in the world in the last 20 years, whether you find it more difficult as time goes on to, to get into a place of hopefulness in your work or whether the extent to which the, the daily churn of what's going on outside in the world comes into your your space when you're at the desk or whether um, it actually feels more urgent now? You know, at the risk of, of, of sounding, I remember when I was working, I've got a a book um, when your kids are a little bit older, hopefully they'll get to it uh, called Flora and Ulysses. It's about a squirrel who gets sucked up into a vacuum cleaner and turned into a superhero. um, And he, he can um, write poetry. That's one of his, um, skills as a superhero and uh and it's ridiculous and he he likes Rilke and um and I remember uh, a friend's husband had had a stroke when I was working on that and I remember sitting down and, and working and thinking this is crazy of everything I mean like I should be doing something and then I thought no, this is the thing to do is to make somebody laugh and to give them hope. And so that feeling has intensified. I don't question anymore um, if it's what I should be doing or if, or if the world needs something different. I think this is, it's so necessary for us to find a way to connect. So necessary for us to see each other and uh, to love each other. And I think that telling a story well can do that. Yeah, I think that's 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 exactly right. There's a um, uh, C.S. Lewis ha- had had what I think was initially a radio talk that was um, during towards the end of World War II that was sort of about art during wartime, um, and he and he he said you know something to the effect of um, if you if you can't if you can't write stories during an emergency during wartime then you never can because it's always an emergency. <sighs> Um, that's the, the, the emergency is the human condition. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that makes me tear up a little bit. Yeah. It's an uh, emergency. Let me tell a story. Yeah. Um, can, can I ask what you're working on now? Uh, what I'm working on now I'm working on, um, uh, very loosely 
connected uh, fairy tales, which get um, churned out here and sent to Anne, and then occasionally she'll say, hey, uh, why don't you send this uh, to Chris at Harper's? Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I've got those, I've got those uh, fairy tales going and, and they have been an absolute delight. And it, it, part of it is just um, a longstanding debt to Denison and Hans Christian Andersen that I'm kind of, you know, answering for with those. And then I've got a novel that I just finished that will be out and uh, not next year, but the year after that. Um, you're quite prolific. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. It's like, I always want to argue with people when they say that. Um, it's like, because I feel like I I'm slow as molasses. I, it takes me so long to write. Um, but uh, I've been doing it for a while now. So yeah. Uh, okay. I'm a, I'm prolific. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say I, um, uh, I, I, I studied writing as an undergraduate with Joyce Carol Oates. Oh my goodness. Uh, so I have a, I have a particular also, um, a model for what, <laughs> what I, I don't, I'm not sure if, if, if by Joyce's standards you, you qualify or not. I don't That's right. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> um, she would say the same thing. She would say, I, it doesn't feel like it's going quickly when I'm doing it, you know, and I knew how much she spent on revision and things like that. Um, and, uh, and I think um, the, 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 the reality is also, I mean, a lot of writers um, find a lot of excuses uh, to not be writing. Um, and in some cases, those excuses are good excuses. They're things like doing the job that pays your rent or, um, uh, you know, whatever else. But um, the truth is that if you actually uh, sit down every day and, and, and really do it, um, you you wind up with uh, a lot of pages. Uh, yeah, you're, you're singing my song, you know, because I I spent so long wanting to do it and dreaming of doing it and, you know, dreaming all the dreams that you dream when you're in your 20s, you know, black turtleneck on the back of a book and, you know, like, uh, you know, just being a writer, capital W. And, and it took me until I was almost 30 to figure out that I was going to have to write something. And then I was like, how am I going to do this? You know, and at the time I was running two miles a day and I never dreamed of being a, a, a runner, but yet I could make myself go and run two miles every day. And so I thought, okay, I'll write two pages every day. Just, I'll just do it and then it will be done. And that's kind of still where I am. It's just like, if you get up and you do that, it doesn't matter that you're, if you're going to work or if you're going to school, you can find the time to sit down and do two pages. And after a while, Denison again, if you show up every day without faith and without hope, the work will finally find itself. And did you, did you have a lot of um, desk drawer novel sort of things when you in that, or, or once you started sitting down every day and doing it, did you start pretty quickly producing the work that became your first published works? Oh no, I, I, um, I spent, um, it was just one terrible thing after another. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and it, I read a wonderful article once. I can't remember where it was about how, you know, nobody says I'm going to go be a brain surgeon. Um, and, uh, and then start, you know, operating on brains. It's just like there, I served the apprenticeship. Right. Um, and, and the apprenticeship was filled with lousy, lousy things, but I found my, 
uh, I, I found my way, what moved me. Um, and I, you know, after you, if you show up and do that and you, and you see, you can have enough distance and you do enough drafts, you can start to tell whether something's working or not and whether you're doing the work that, that you, that your heart needs to be doing. Yeah. No, that's right. And, you know, Joyce used to say something also where she said, you know, because she was teaching undergraduate uh, creative writing classes, and she would say, in, in, in the standards in the history class are not whether or not the paper you're writing could go into a peer-reviewed academic journal. And there isn't a sense that if you're not writing as a 19-year-old um, things that can get uh, published in, in academic journals that uh, you're not cut out to do this work. There's just a sense that you got to learn how to do it and then you do it. Um, but for some reason, you know, for creative writers, some people, if, if the work they're doing um, when they start doesn't read to them uh, uh, like the work that they're, you know, reading in, in published form that somehow they're not, they're just they're not, not Right. They're not, they're not supposed to do. It's like, I, it's, that's what, there's this, um, notion and societally that, you know, oh, if you're talented, then you'll sit down and it will, if this is what you're supposed to do, it will come out, it will come out right when you sit down. And I always, when I'm talking to kids about that, I, I always talk about, um, that wonderful book, Art and Fear, um, and how they say, you know, there's one Mozart born every century. Somebody hears the music and puts it down on the paper. And then they say, guess what? It's not you. <laughs> um, and it's like, if you want to, if you want to try to do this, um, it's not going to come out right the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's work and it's work that you can get better at. And that's the good news. It's entirely up to you if you want to do this. Yeah. The, 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 another question I wanted to ask, although, you know, you, you said that you weren't particularly conscious while sitting down to write this story, that you were writing it for a different audience than, than any other story, but, um, whether, so, you know, I know a lot of short story writers who are very, very good short story writers who still sort of feel like I need to write the novel to be, uh, you know, taken seriously or, 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 or whatever. And I know um, writers who are very good nonfiction writers who always dreamed of being fiction writers. And, you know, people often, the thing that they find that they have a real talent for isn't precisely what they wanted to be doing. And they, and I, I, I do wonder whether um, having, uh, you know, discovered if that's, uh, if that's the right way to put it um, at a certain point, that um, you had you had this great talent for writing these stories that young readers responded to so so much and having this uh, great success at it. Uh, whether there was part of you that, that 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 thought, well, this isn't you know me with the black turtleneck on the back of the book, and so I need to do something else. Uh, no, <laughs> um, I I feel like. Uh, and I, uh, there's no way for me to answer that without uh, uh, just outrageous hyperbole. But like the, I mean this, the luckiest person in the world that I have found um, exactly what I'm supposed 
to be doing. Um, and it, it doesn't involve the black turtleneck, but it's, but it is just, I feel so profoundly like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. If occasionally there is a short story that speaks um, to adults as well as uh, to kids, then that's great. But this is writing for kids is, is the thing that I'm, did you read um, George Saunders book, A Swim? in the pond yes, and the rain. Those, uh, and those, he, yeah. yeah. And he addresses that so wonderfully in a way that I've never, ever, nobody else has ever talked about it because he was, I, I think he said he was writing <laughs> Hemingway kind of stories right. is what he was doing. And, uh, he had left a doodle, uh, of the funny little thing, um, sitting by the phone and his wife saw it and said, what's this? And, uh, and it turned out that there was, you know, what you want to do, um, might not be the thing that, that you, um, can and should be doing, but, um, and it takes a while to figure that out. What you love isn't necessarily what you're going to make. Um, and, but yeah, I have no regrets. I just have wonder that I get to do it, to tell the stories and to have them read. Yeah. It's, you know, Saunders was actually one of the people I was thinking of because he, he had a particular um, view of like this Hemingway-esque um, literary seriousness. He also, I think, had a, had a, had a view that the novel was the, uh, was the thing. And then he found that when he was just sort of really being his honest self, a particular thing came out on the page. Um, and, and then it turned out that by being honest and, and, and writing that thing, you then get all of the, the literary success or whatever else that was what you were, you know, sort of trying to get out in the first place. Yep. Yep. And, um, that, that book, that's another one that that's gone up there for me with, um, the Judah Thurman biography of Isaac Dennison. As I, I, I reread that. Um, I've read that three times now since it came out because it, it's everything. It's how to be human, how to find yourself, how to, how to find other human beings in story and through story and through doing the work that you're supposed to do in the world, swim in the pond and rain. I'll, I'll just say it so that people can rush out and buy it. All right. Well, well, we're we're doing plugs. I will just just end on the note of um, encouraging everyone to uh, go online or to their local newsstand uh, and read on a winter's night this wonderful story um, in the December issue of Harper's. And thank you so much for taking this time with me, Chris. It was an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.